a massive black cat. Very long in the leg, very muscular looking, round ears. The whole body language of the thing said, this is my road, I'm not moving for you. You say, well, I've seen this big cat. Some people just flatly refuse. They think that Britain's such a sweet little island, we shouldn't have predators that size. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Hello and welcome. We have reached episode 30 of Big Cat Conversations. We're coming to you in early August, and we're also approaching our first birthday. So a big thanks to everyone for your support for the show. And we're looking forward to more to come in year two. We've had a couple of interesting developments in the past fortnight, so I'll say what I can about those at the end of the show. But meantime, we're going to hear straight away from our guest, Josh. He's going to discuss an incident which happened in Anglesey just over a year back. Josh is based in Cheshire, and he was visiting Anglesey when this happened. He was especially prompted to get in touch with us when he heard the case of Andrew being followed by a panther at the side of the River Severn in Gloucestershire in episode 28. So Josh, many thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I've been really excited to tell my story. Splendid. Well, thank you very much. And we've obviously got a lot to talk about, the incident itself and all the reflections afterwards. First of all, Josh, did you ever give the matter any thought, the matter of big cats in Britain, any thought before this happened? Did you have an opinion on it? It was never something I was aware of, if I'm honest. And it was something that if someone would have said it to me, I would have said, it's a load of rubbish. It's impossible. Someone would have noticed them. We would have seen them. I would have been that person, if I'm very honest with you. You would have been an arch sceptic. I would have, yeah, because, you know, they are an apex predator. And to see them in our our countryside, surrounded by sheep and foxes, and you would have thought they stood out like it's all fun, but obviously that isn't the case. Yeah. Okay. well, can we actually hear all about the key incident? I know there's several parts to it, but take us through it step by step, if you could. Sure. I was uh, staying at a place in Anglesey where I've been a few times, and uh, I took the dog for a twilight walk. It was quite a windy day. It was dark. But the moon was quite large, so you could see, and my eyes sort of adjusted. I walked probably 300 metres away from the house, down this long stretch. It was a hedgerow on each side. And as I turned around to then start walking back, I noticed a set of eyes come out, and that grabbed my attention. But I just thought, fox, cat, something like that. And uh, I didn't really think anything of it. And then behind it, out of the hedgerow, came this large black animal, and it looked at me. It then raised its head, and that made me understand the size of the animal. And second of all, the distance between the eye and the shape of the eye and the colour was something I had never seen. There was nothing I could pin of what it was. And then when the animal started to move, it moved in a way that wasn't like anything else I've seen. It was sharp. It understood what I was and looked at me, made the decision that, I wasn't a threat and carried on what it was doing. But as the wind was blowing in my face, as I walked towards it, because I was walking back towards the house, I was probably about 100 metres away. I started to hear these, like, grunts, if you like, from the bushes. I just really couldn't put my finger on what it was. But my instant sort of view was that it was some sort of predator at this point. But I was trying to convince myself that, you know, we are in Britain and there's nothing around that can hurt me, it'll be fine. So I walked towards it. I then turned to my left and shined my torch. And when I did that, the animal erupted in rage. As I looked over, I could see this long black tail at the top of the crop. And it was moving in such an odd way, you know, different directions, it was curled over almost like a lemur's tail, but the noises were coming out of it were like, were like a lion to start with. And I was genuinely convincing myself, don't be ridiculous, you know, it'll be, it'll be a fox or something. Mm. But the way the power and the, the speed of the way it moved all the hedgerow and the noise that came out of it, it was snarling, it was hissing, it was just completely out of this world. 
And I instantly turned my light off at that point because I didn't really know what to do. It was almost like a fight or flight situation. Mm -hmm. And I then turned away and my dog did not want to be in that field full stop. He was not happy to be there as soon as we were there. And I just thought he was misbehaving and just being a bit odd, if I'm honest. But as I then walked away, I could hear this thing getting closer to me. And the dog sort of stopped in its track. As I sort of moved away, I was pulling the dog's lead because I was quite frightened at this time due to the noise that this animal made was just insane. The noise was enough to just have all the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. It was just like something I've never heard before in my life. As I started to walk away, I felt like a tug on the lead and the dog was just completely still. And this animal, it felt like it was behind me, but only like a meter or two as it came through the hedge. And my instinct was just to get away from this animal. But I also knew that I couldn't run. And I didn't really even think about anything. I just started to act and do things. And as I started to walk away, it started to move along the bushes behind me and almost stopped me, but just from a distance, from a 20 metres or so, sometimes getting closer, sometimes moving away. For, you know, 200 metres, it was calling all the shots. Like, I was not making any decisions. I felt extremely vulnerable. I knew at this point that it was not scared of me. It was not a cow. It was not a fox. It was something else. I knew it was feline due to the way that it walked and moved. And by the eyes, if you see those yellow and green eyes or those yellow eyes at night with a torch on it, there is no mistaking what that is. Mm -hmm. And the noise afterwards just sent shivers down my spine. And I'm not trying to exaggerate this. It was just something that's taken me a while to be able to talk about, but it was truly terrifying experience. And as I started to wander back towards where we got to sort of like the houses, there's like two or three farmhouses. I saw that the corner of my right eye, it sort of run up this bank, but like lightning. Every move it made was calculated and thought out. And I was essentially just being preyed upon by an animal, which is not something you really come across. It was a really strange experience. But at the time, I was sort of in denial. I didn't really know 100% what it was. I knew it was not very friendly. Large, fast, powerful, black, massive predator eyes with a big tail that moved a lot in strange ways. At that time, I hadn't processed this. I never even thought that was an option or a possibility. So then I, I get back to the house and I walk in. I'm a bit flustered and I, I look at my fiance and I just think, no, I'm not going to try and explain that. <laughs> it's just too bizarre. And I'm sure there's a I'm sure there's a logical scientific reason of what it was and, you know, it'll be fine sort of thing. So I just sort of got on with the night because we're away, as you do. And the dog went back outside and. You know, it, it, the dog was terrified prior to it, but he seemed to go outside okay. You know, he's doing his normal things, sniffing around. And then suddenly I hear it, like a scream from the dog, which is a noise I've never heard him do. And I've had the dog for six years. It was like he'd been attacked, but not by another dog or anything like that. It was just a noise I've never heard him make ever and probably will never hear him make again. And he ran inside, and you're talking only five metres or so. It was probably a eight-metre, ten-metre gated area, just a little small section. Mm -hmm. As he ran in, he then just sort of collapsed as soon as he got in the house and was shaking. And at that point, we were so confused about what it was. And I ran straight out the house, and I just saw this black cat, large black cat, this large sort of black tail that killed at the end, which the first thing that took my notice was the tail. It, it was just, it, there's no way it could have been anything else bar a leopard-like creature. It's something you see off documentaries. It wasn't huge. You know, it was big. It was a big cat, but, you know, 
it wasn't lion size or anything like that. It was just way bigger than a normal cat. And then as it jumped over that fence, but it was like lightning. It was only, I probably saw it for a second. It jumped over the first one really quite gracefully. And then it started to hit and bound against the fences behind it. And it's only when it moves, you can really feel and sense the power of the animal. But to be honest, it's, it's a compact little animal, you know, in regards to what I think it is. Mm. But as it starts to move, the power of it and the speed is just out of this world in regards to what we get in this country. Yeah, explosive. Explosive and aggressive and really calculated. Yeah. And so you got a better look at it that time, did you, when it was in the garden of the um, holiday house? Well, when I first saw it, I instantly thought, like, big cat was my first thing, on, or big wolf or <laughs> big prey animal was the first thing on my mind. But I just managed to convince myself it'll be fine. I had to walk past it anyway. Mm. And then when I saw that, it just literally blew my mind because I was like, it is genuinely what I think it is. But after that, I managed to convince myself that that isn't possible. Someone must have like a bit, I don't know, a big lynx or something they keep in a farm and it's got out. Or, but And then I realized lynxes don't have big tails and they're not black and <laughs> that's not a possibility. And I spoke to some of the locals and they essentially said there are big cats around there. And that was the first time anyone has ever said to me, you know, big cats live in this country and they are out there. And at that point, it just blew my mind completely at the fact that I had come across one of these animals. And to understand the danger that, if not me, the dog was in, but probably me as well. And the way it was calculated enough to come back and get the dog or try to get the dog and not really be too fussed that we were inside. I think it, it obviously knew that humans were about, and that's probably why maybe it let it go. I don't know. But my main thought is, how did it not take the dog away? That's the only thing that makes me think, you know, how did it get away with it? Yes. There was one drop of blood on his back, but it wasn't like normal blood. You know, when he hurts himself, it was thick. It was like it had like saliva in it. And the dog wasn't injured at all in any way. Like, I checked him out fully because I, I thought maybe he'd, like, I don't know, cut himself on something, and that might have been the reason. Got to be honest, I've tried to think of every other scenario than me bumping into a, a leopard in the pit rock on my, in the middle of a field on my own. Yeah. Um, and when I spoke to the locals, their reaction told me all that I needed to know, really. The fact that they, they know they're there and they live with them and most of the time they don't come into contact with them and if anything they're probably more scared of us to a certain degree they must be otherwise why wouldn't there be more encounters or or injuries if you like yes but just going back to the drop of blood um josh do you think it could have been that the cat had got a rabbit or something in near the back garden and it was just warning your dog away from it so it spilt a bit of the the, the rabbit or whatever prey it had and your dog just got that splattered on it my view on it is that it probably made the kill of whatever i saw come out the hedgerow first and as i was walking up to it i had a lot of wind in my face and it was distracted by eating and it ate whatever it was preying upon and as it came around the back of where we were it sat on the fence and a drop of blood came out of his mouth or it grabbed him and it just came off the paw or the... I don't know. I really don't know. I, I would be guessing. It was a bit of a mystery, to be honest, but it just wasn't like normal blood. It was like clotted thick blood almost. It was just strange. And there wasn't a mark on him and he was just shaking. He, the dog was in shock. Was the dog traumatised all the way through the whole experience? He didn't like it to start with, but I think he was okay and he got over that to then go back outside but afterwards he was not going outside at all he was like no chance and the dog's stupid and fearless to be honest <laughs> but uh yeah he he did not fancy that one bit yeah it's only after speaking to you know a couple of locals and understanding that maybe i should have warned some people 
that um, I realized that this was even possible. And when I, you know, my voice is you know, a bit strange when I'm speaking to you, but because it's quite a, quite a traumatic thing to randomly happen and to know the danger and what, what I actually saw. Because most of the time, you know, you're walking somewhere and you see something or you, you know, you feel like you're getting watched if you're outside or you get that spooky feeling. Nothing actually happens. You know, it's just a, just a, a feeling of being sort of alone in the dark. But to actually have something stalk you and follow you and the noises was just an incredible yet terrifying experience. It truly was. I mean, well, thank you for the detail. And it sounds like it was full on scary. And to relive it is very helpful with our audience. I'm sure everybody appreciates that. How long do you think that whole episode took, uh, the, the walk back? I think when I saw it, it probably took me know, a minute or two to get to where it was. Yeah. And I didn't shine the light until I was at that point. And then another five minutes back, maybe even less than that. So maybe five minutes tops, but it was five minutes long enough, to be honest with you. Yes. And how close was the cat, do you think? Um, what sort of distances are we talking about? I reckon after I turned the light off, I genuinely think it was in touching distance, if not touching the dog. Because when I pulled the lead, the dog didn't move like how it normally would. And it felt heavy. And at that point, that just freaked me out big time. Whether or not the dog just froze, but the dog's not massive. And it felt like I was pulling quite a lot of weight because I was I was freaked out at this point. I wanted out of there. And the dog was bolting most of the time on the lead. He was bolting. He didn't want to be there. And then suddenly it was just still and making a lot of noise. And it was behind me. I didn't have the bottle to turn the light back on basically. I was just like, I don't want to even want to know what it is. Yeah. It was that. The main thing was the noise out of the thing was just so horrendously loud and aggressive. Yes. That's enough to scare anyone. At such close proximity as well. And, and this is rare, I have to say, in all my experience. I mean, vocalisations, uh, calls and hisses are not that rare, but the, the sort of intensity which you've described and the close proximity is extremely rare. I'm just going to read you, Josh, from the Cougar Management Guidelines written by mountain lion experts and researchers and rangers in North America. They've done a guidance document we know that mountain lions are pretty equivalent to, to leopards in many ways, and I think this behavioural chart is very relevant. In terms of hissing, snarling and vocalisation, it says that is either a defensive behaviour to warn you off, or it's suggesting that attack may be imminent. And the human risk is moderate if it's defensive behaviour by the cat, or a higher risk if it's close distance. So you were at moderate to high risk, perhaps, on that one. In terms of following and hiding, although it wasn't sort of hiding much, wasn't it? It was just following you. But again, this guideline says degree of risk, in most instances, moderate. Or it says, in some cases, it's assessing the, the chance of a successful attack. So it could be assessing the chance of a successful attack on a dog. But again, human risk, moderate. How do you react to that, the official guidance? <laughs> I think I snuck up on it, which I know that sounds hard to believe, but I think with the, the strength of the wind blowing against me, because, you know, I'm on the coast of Anglesey. Yeah. It's windy, um, to be honest, to put it lightly. And I think it was occupied by whatever it was eating. So it let you get fairly close without before it warned you off? But I think I sort of startled it a little bit, if I'm honest. Yeah. Or whether or not I heard it before I shone the light on it. Whether or not the little sort of grunty noises that it was making um, was it sort of eating or warning me, I, I don't know. But it did not light the light as soon as I shined the light on it. It was a big, powerful sort of LED torch. Yeah, it hated that. It really hated that. Um, and the movement as it was coming to... It moved backwards. It moved sideways first. It like ran around in a little circle, a bit confused, and then was coming towards me. And as it was coming towards me, I was just like, I, I don't know why I turned the light off. I don't know why I just turned around and walked away calmly. It's just what I did. It was an automatic, spontaneous response. Yeah. At no point did I think taking on this thing was an option. It was like, at the same time, I didn't want to be running away from it either. 
this is not something I thought about. It's just something that I did. Yeah, mental. Instinct took over, but you kept your composure. Yeah, I, I sort of, I was like, right, I have to just deal with this. And, you know, when you're in that fight or flight scenario, I felt like all my senses were heightened. It was easy to make decisions in a way because I didn't really think about them. Yes, fair enough. When you got back, did your other half, did your fiance? I know you didn't feel it was the sort of right thing to talk about the profound, you know, events that had just happened. But did she sense that you were a bit of a nervous wreck? Did she say anything about what's happened to you, or you're as white as a ghost, or anything? No, because we don't go away that often, and I didn't really want to turn it into this me going out in the field seeing something, and and I just didn't want to go down that road with her, really. So you masked it. Yeah, and at the time, I was still like, oh, it's, it's impossible. It'll, there'll be some reason for it. There'll be, it'll be something that makes sense that <laughs> I'll speak to someone and they'll just tell me next door has this huge cat that it's a bit abnormal or something. <laughs> you know, it was nicer to me to just carry on my night at that point than it was to sit and worry about that, if I'm honest about it. Yeah. With the dog element that happened then, even that was a bit odd, but... Uh, it's, it's tricky to to then turn around to say to someone, oh, I've just seen a leopard. It's quite a statement. I haven't told many people about this, but when they do, they just look at me like, right, okay, did you? And I don't blame them, I really don't, because I would have probably done the same. You've said about the tail and the liveness and the athleticism and its explosive power and everything. Any Any other key features that you noticed and how quickly did you research and realize it was almost certainly a black leopard well one thing i thought was really odd about it was i first noticed the eyes and then the ability of how tall the eye or how the travel of the eyes if you like to when it it looked at me it then raised its head and had a good smell of me from 100 meters so it knew i was there and you then got a size guide if you like from the animal of how much those eyes can travel because it raised its neck or something to get a better scent of me. Yeah. And the tail, and when it was on the back fence for a split second, it almost had like rabbit legs to it, you know, because you can see like the way that the cat's hind legs are. Yes. It had a, like a really thick sort of fur to it. It was just an all one colour. It almost looked like a shiny grey in that light in particular, because there was an outdoor light and it sort of shined off it. Mm. But the main thing is the noises and the, you can sense when something's powerful by the way that it moves everything else around it. The cat's quite a delicate thing, the way it jumps from one thing to another. It hops about, if you like. But this thing, when it hit something, especially when it was trying to get away, it clattered it. It really did. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, the, the speed of the animal was just... You basically saw it, and it was gone in a split. So when people say, oh, how do you not have photos about it? I can completely understand why you wouldn't have photos. At no point from any of that experience did I say or, or think, oh, I'll get my camera out. In the garden, there was no chance it was there, gone before. The field incident, it was just, at that point, you, you're trying to figure out what you're seeing and what's in front of you and what your next step is. And you've got a dog with you. You've got a dog on a lead to control and protect. Exactly. Yeah, very upset. And he, he really wasn't pleased about it at all. And in hindsight, maybe I should have, not put him in that situation again second time round but yeah i just didn't believe what i saw almost but you couldn't have got a photo very easily with a dog on a lead even if you weren't scared to be honest i didn't even have the bottle to look at it when it was close up at me let alone take a yeah in my opinion i was in quite a lot of danger then yes and i think i made the right decision to walk away with it because otherwise it was a face-to-face -face confrontation in essentially the pitch black in the middle of a field on my own. And I do believe they're smaller than you'd think. In my opinion, they're like of their own sort of breed in a way or species that they've became smaller. I know you've touched upon this before, yeah. but um, they've become smaller and more adapted to the environment. You're not talking about huge sort of African leopard here. You're talking about something, in my opinion, it has a lot of leopard genes 
but it's just almost like a smaller version of them, or, or maybe they're just smaller than I would give them credit for. Well, they can vary depending on the prey, to be honest. And and a small, you know, female can be smaller than a male. And yeah, if they're predominantly eating smaller prey, they will be smaller. Even in Africa, some of the Cape ones, you know, hardly ever eat the the bigger antelope type species. They are physically smaller. So, yeah, what you have said it was the size compared to a Labrador. About the same size of a Labrador. I know that's cliche. Yeah. But uh, it was. But if I'm honest, you know, I got a little bit into leopards when we were traveling to Sri Lanka because of the Yellow National Park. So I looked into leopards quite a bit. And I know they're not massive things, but yeah, I do have a feeling that a lot of the reason there's confusion in this country is because they're actually smaller than people think. Yeah. Well, and also they're all black here, whereas Sri Lanka, you see the normal uh, rosetted type. But uh, Sri Lanka's a good place to see leopards, I gather. Often they're very difficult to see on safaris and holidays, but you've got a good chance of uh, viewing a leopard in Sri Lanka, I gather. Yeah, we didn't actually go in there. We ended up doing something else, which I do sort of regret, but, you know, there's always next time. But I knew that they were native and lived in that country, and we would wander around the jungle at night. Never did I come across anything like this. Yeah. You know, it was in my mind a little bit, but I was like, well, you know, they, they say they're just in the national park. So, you know, we're in the jungle, it'd be fine, you know, no issues. But if I'd have known they roam around the uh, British countryside, maybe I'd be a bit more concerned. But I don't think it really wants anything to do with humans. I really don't. I think it's how the human reacts. Those guidelines that I just referred to, a lot of the thrust of that is it all depends on humans' reaction largely as to whether you're going to get a confrontation. Did you go back and look on the internet and did you quickly realise that had to be a black leopard or was most likely a black leopard? Well, after I spoke to the local and they said that, yeah, they do live around here and you were quite lucky, that blew my mind. So I then went home and and looked on. And then to find out that there's loads of other sightings around the same area, Mm. you're talking five minutes up the road from where the sightings are. I just could not believe what I was then reading uh, because it made sense of something that, to me, made no sense whatsoever. And the fact that I wasn't the only one that had seen this animal and the fact that it was described in exactly the same way, and not just one, multiple sightings. Yes, on an island, yeah. Yeah, on Anglesey, which is an island. Yeah. Yeah, I was first briefed on Black Panther, Black Leopard reports in Anglesey on a field trip with uh, mammal experts in 2010. A senior zoologist basically said, oh, you're the big cat chap, aren't you? Introduced himself to me and I said, yeah. And he said, you know about the sightings in the northern part of Anglesey, do you? And I didn't and I was surprised. And he said a farmer friend of his had had several and um, then I went back home and I looked at press reports. And so that was way back in 2010 and they'd been going on for a while then. So that's quite a while back. So yeah, it's a big place, Anglesey. The thought is how would one get on to Anglesey? It could walk across the bridge. Seriously, that is possible. They try and control grey squirrels getting across the bridge, the Menai Bridge, so they don't threaten the red squirrel population there. So mammals can get across bridges more than we think. I think that's the most likely explanation. But Anglesey might be a place that somebody would just drive to and dump one or get one through the ports and just um, let it go. Anyway, it seems there's at least one on Anglesey. Yeah, I believe it came across the train tracks just due to... It's a natural route down from the hills in Sardonia. If it was um, it getting pushed out of its territory due to it being a male or something, I, I don't really know. Mm. Or, it, you know, if I'm honest, if I was going to release two leopards, I'd probably release them on an island. At least I'd know that they were there and contained to a certain degree. Yeah. But that's just my view on it, really. Yeah, that is interesting. Well, I don't think we'll ever know. Both of those are interesting and possible thoughts. Can I just ask you about um, what we talk about on the podcast sometimes? And I'm as guilty as anybody on this. We'd say, oh, how interesting that we've got this apex predator and it now presents this incredible frisson of risk and we feel better people as a result of that. <laughs> how do you feel about when we talk in abstract about that frisson of risk in the countryside after what you've experienced? Do you think it's rather a trite remark compared to what you experience? I wasn't sure about this to start with. I wasn't even sure about, you know, going back to the place, etc. But who are we as humans to think that, you know, we have to be safe at all times, nothing can ever harm us, etc. They're entitled to be there just as much as we are. And we sort of 
have to respect the fact that they 99.9% of the time do not want anything to do with us. And if I go walking around fields at night where, you know, they are and start shining lights on things that make growling noises, then I won't probably be doing that again. Yeah. And I was, I've been advised to not walk around at night, uh, etc. Um, I will go back there and I will have a look because I'm just curious, but I don't think there's anything to really be afraid of. We should embrace the fact that they're in our countryside and the fact that they're surviving and doing well. And it's about time sort of wildlife won a bit. It's great. Yeah, terrified me. Don't get me wrong. And I'll never probably look at their walks in the dark in the countryside in the same way. But at the same time, I'm not going to let it affect my life or change the way that I do things because otherwise you will just never do anything. We wouldn't get in a car. We wouldn't do anything. And believe me or don't it's completely up to you guys and i respect your opinion regardless but you know they are out there and i've seen it with my own eyes i'd hate to anything to happen to this cat because it let me off the hook didn't it i think the other thing to remember is that people are incredibly unlikely to ever see one or encounter one in their lives in britain anyway and the prospect of having a full-on encounter a confrontation for even a few seconds are minimal and certainly what you had josh is going to be extremely rare you know it's not going to happen to many people to be actually followed one like that at close quarters for five minutes but uh, the other thing that's interesting about your reaction what you've just said about that you feel fairly protective about it and very respectful is I've found this with, I think, without exception, all the other witnesses I've spoken to, most of which have not been on the podcast and predated the podcast, who have had close confrontations and potentially dangerous confrontations, they've all stressed that they feel protective or feel respectful of the animal. It's like the closer to the energy of the animal people get, the more they feel, wow, that animal's doing its stuff in our landscape and they know how to live around us and we should respect that. Well, it was calling the shots, believe me. And it decided what happened that night and it made me feel very vulnerable. And um, I don't think we should really worry about them that much. Uh, um, I really don't because they're fine. They're there. I would like the evidence to be there, but at the same time, it does worry me that when it is there, what's going to happen? And that's why when we spoke prior, I was like, well, I don't want anything, any harm to come of it. It was a majestic creature and it's interesting to come across an animal that's that intelligent and that in tune with its environment and what it does and to be made to feel vulnerable by an animal is quite a weird experience yeah i mean this was over a year ago and you were saying to me before you came on this is it's had quite a lasting effect and you think it will have a lasting effect on you yeah i used to be a very sort of like closed-minded person science wins it and that's just the way it is (laughs) i believe we're not actually told everything and i believe there's more evidence out there than we know and maybe it's for the best for the animals that, you know, it's like this. Um, but I think you go about things in the right way. And I just sort of wanted to speak to someone who had similar sort of views about it um, and share my experience because I just couldn't understand it really until I put all my ducks in a row. You heard other witnesses and now other people can hear from you. So, I mean, in a way, it's the witnesses that we're hearing from, that we're learning from. So that's what's so crucial. Where do you stand on awareness raising and how to do that other than talking it through, which I think is very useful? What about signs? Do you think in a place like where you were, there could be cautionary signs that are, they'd have to be worded carefully? Do you think people should be alerted to the prospect of it more? My understanding that signs are, are there to alert danger or risk of injury and my knowledge there hasn't been any injuries apart from maybe a scratch or so so i don't think they do cause any danger at the minute obviously if things change then and there were injuries to these then we're talking about a different case i just think it's fine how it is i want to see more clinical evidence i really do as much as everyone else does that's you know listen to this I don't think there's a massive problem with the way that it is. And you know, maybe the people that have got the evidence that don't release it, in, in my opinion, are doing it for a reason. But uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know, to be honest with you. I don't, I don't know how people would react. I don't know what would happen to them. 
Yeah, it's a Pandora's box potential, isn't it? That's I think a lot of people are concerned about that. But maybe if you were a landowner in that part of the world and people were made more aware of it, you would worry about people coming with firearms or people just being nosy and some kind of local invasion. That may all be nothing that would happen for real. You might perceive that as a potential hassle in your life and want to stay private. Yeah, I'm a good friend with some farmers and I know that they not want people on their land. They spend most of the time trying to protect their land from various things. It's just they're, they're too busy. They're busy trying to look after their animals and they just haven't got the time for the media. And I don't blame them, really. They're there to do a job. That's just part of the, the environment. Yeah, I remember one farmer. In fact, he's been on the podcast and uh, I was having to speak to a journalist soon after I visited this guy's farm. And I said, uh, can I just park up in your lab- your um, precinct around the corner? Because I've got to speak to a journalist. And he looked at me as if I'd broken ranks. And he said, yes, but be careful what you say. <laughs> so there yeah. we go. Yeah. Quite understand. I've said more than I really wanted to because, of the, like I said, I'm a little bit concerned that i don't really know how people react and i know they're not going to take what i've said in as gospel and nothing's going to change because of it but uh sometimes when you've seen these animals that that's enough for you yes <laughs> don't really need much else i wanted to speak to someone about it so that's why i got in contact with you rick to just make sure i, I wasn't mad but also perhaps bring a bit of closure to it. But you're saying, you know, you're still coming to terms with it in a way because it was such a profound experience. Josh, is there anything you think that would have prepared you better? Had there been signs up or had you known about the prospect of big cats and believed it? Do you think it would have lessened the shock and you'd have dealt with it differently? Or do you think nothing could have prepared you for this really because of the intensity of it? It probably would have scared me more if I'd have known what it was, to be honest because um, there was times where I just convinced myself it, it's fine, you know, it's nothing you're in Britain, nothing can harm you Before this time's word of the week I need a ticking off for mispronouncing last time's word We had vitiligo last time and that is a type of depigmentation which can form things like the cobweb colour morph as described by John from North Devon for the panther-like cat he explained in the last episode. But it's not pronounced vitiligo, as I said last time, but vitiligo. And thanks to Howard Hughes for correcting me live on talk radio. And he's a class act, and he let me off very politely in front of his big audience on The Unexplained on Sunday evenings. Hopefully, he'll still have me back again. So, on to this time's word of the week, and it's about cat's eye shine, because Josh commented on the super bright eyes of the cat he confronted, and witnesses usually report yellow, green, or yellow-green eye shine for the large cats they experience in Britain. And the eye shine is all about the reflective membrane behind the retina in the eye of cats and some other animals. And that separate layer is the tapetum lucidum, and it gives the photoreceptors a second go at detecting photons. Tapidum lucidum translates in Latin as bright tapestry. So as if it were a tapestry of mirror-like cells, the tapetum lucidum reflects the light reaching the eye to return back to the retina and harness light to the maximum for enhanced night vision. In us humans, without that layer, our eye shine, when it's snapped in photographs for example, appears red simply from blood vessels in front of the retina. Hopefully we'll hear more cases of cats gleaming eyeshine from some of our future guests. So that's our word of the week, tapetum lucidum. I think nature is the best designer. So my view is if you were going to design a predatory animal to go unnoticed in the British countryside, you couldn't really go far wrong saying a, a black leopard that's elusive, that can hunt and be quiet about it. It's the perfect animal to do that. So when people say, oh, that, you know, it's impossible, it's not really. That's exactly what they do. They hide, they hunt, and they get away and they stay out of the way of people. I do think they have the potential to do that. And I think the size of them is what confuses people. They're not lion size. And it's the behavior and the sounds and the speed and the power that gives it away. But you have to be quite close to be able to see that and or have an encounter with them. Yeah. It's a tricky one because unless you've seen it with your own eyes, 
you're not going to believe it unless you really want to. And they're just terrifying things to come in face to face with. Absolutely terrifying. I'm glad I had the experience and I'm trying to sort of take it as a positive and a really like a lucky thing because I know a lot of people, if, if you gave them the option, they would love to see it. And a lot of the, the you know, close friends that I speak to, they're like, oh, you know, you're really lucky. I'd love to see one out in the wild. There may be in the day, you know, in the other field next to you. Yeah, so from a car, from a car window. Not a metre or two in the pitch black, it being behind you. Not so pleasant. But at the same time, as long as you survive these things and everything goes well, then yeah, great. It's an experience and I enjoyed it. Yeah. I enjoyed the after research and knowing that I've had that experience. And I feel privileged to have seen an animal like that in this country. Uh, I love animals. Always have done since a very young age and very into wildlife and and animals. And part of that comes from the design background of just how they develop attributes that make them perfect at what they do in the environment. And I think a leopard is sort of perfect at doing the job we're describing. Yes. And what's interesting about leopards, they are generalists. They've evolved and designed themselves to be very versatile so they can cope with many different ecosystems and environments. But if you look across their ranges in the world, including especially the black leopards, where do they thrive most and best? It is, if you look at the literature and the distribution maps, it is moist, deciduous forest. Uh, what's Britain got quite good quantities of moist deciduous forests and you feel from just that sense of being close up to one that they are adapting we try and consider that possibility on the podcast with our guests sometimes and I had a few unknowns or a few things that didn't make sense and one of them that was why are they all black you know or the leopards and you answered that question for me regarding the breeding two black leopards have to have black offspring Mm. so that solved that for me and the breeding thing was an issue as well because I was like, are oh, they interbreeding? Would they then become sterile? And I believe that is a possibility that they can be breeding as well. It's a strange one because people say, oh, were they released into the wild or have they already been here? Because I know there's a lot of sort of folklore in North Wales and around those sort of areas that you know, there's a possibility that these things might have been around for a while. Who knows? Um, I'd love to know how they got there. Because obviously for me, it's not, are they there? Or it's like, how did they get there? You know, what's the... And um, like I was saying before, I always go with a scientific, logical route. This stretches logic a little bit. Yeah. The puzzle about lots of parts of Wales and potential big cat sightings is that there aren't deer in large tracts of, of Wales, and yet there are still big cat sightings. So what are they eating? Because we think deer is the mainstay of the diet in most other places, but there's plenty of rabbits and pigeons and pheasants and uh, maybe some sheep. You know, we, we tend to think there's no, the sheep attacks are rarer these days. But So that is a puzzle about the diet in parts of Wales. Anyway, you saw one having a having a snack at least. Yeah, I'd say rabbits or I could survive in Wales if I needed to. So I'm sure an apex predator has no problem. Yeah, sure. They probably pick and choose what they want. And uh, maybe that's why they've gone a bit smaller because they prey on smaller prey. There's a few things. Like, why, why don't people have brief, etc.? Why haven't they been hit by cars? And But there's a part of me that thinks that these may well get covered up. Well, absolutely. It's interesting that people have these profound questions, but how would you know? A police officer had a very detailed conversation with my friend Frank Tunbridge, who's been on the show in Gloucestershire, about one that got hit by a car and and told him chapter and verse about what happened. The police are not going to issue a press release about it, and people say all sorts of things about, oh, there hasn't been X, there hasn't been Y. What they mean is they haven't heard about what's happened about that kind of footage or that kind of incident. Why is everybody going to know about these things? And as you're saying, as you're implying, I think, it's very likely that these things wouldn't be released and declared. This will be the third time now I've mentioned this ranger in Cannock Chase who told me he had to take a carcass down from a tree, a rodeo carcass, halfway up the tree, and, and it was clearly a leopard stash and half eaten by something like a leopard. And he said, you know, what were we going to do? We weren't going to tell the world about that. There's nothing we could do. We didn't have the resources to follow it up. So... We, we agonised at work for a week about what to do and there's nothing we could do, so we said nothing, we told nobody. It's inevitable, really, that sort of thing would happen. Because I thought, you know, do I tell the police? What are the police going to do? And what benefit is that going to have? 
and that's hence why you know I contacted you. I was like, well, I'll speak to someone with a bit more sort of knowledge on the area, really. Basically, I really want to see some video footage, like everyone does, just because then we know. But but if you had it, incidentally, if you had video footage and it was on your land, would you release it? I don't know. That's a good question. If I was a farmer, probably not, to be honest. And like that's why I've not said I was exactly this spot in Anglesey, because I do care about the person's house that I was staying at, and I don't want it flooded with loads of people. And quite frankly, if no one finds this animal, then fine. I don't need to know, or no, I don't need to see it on the front of the pages or anything. If that happened, yeah, I'd find it fascinating. I'd read about it. But at the same time, we don't really know about it. It's not the end of the world. If you've been lucky enough to see one, then that's enough for you, really. Yeah. If we knew it was routinely taking dogs or routinely a risk to people or taking sheep and overdoing that and risk and affecting people's livelihoods, it may be that you would have to reconsider your approach to that particular individual cat. But it doesn't mean to say all the others are like it. I think that's fair enough. And I don't really know the impact that they have on people's lives. All I know is, as far as I'm aware, they go around eating rabbits and things. We're going to be talking about sheep losses in an old case in the next episode, actually. Luckily, I think that's a rare event, but it's important to keep being reminded about it because anybody who is experiencing that, in my view, needs some kind of help and support. So, I've done quite a lot of walking in Wales over time and found sheep carcasses that are like basically stripped. But unless you know, you just assume it's just like a fox or something. Yes, and scavenging. Yes, it's got to be very fresh and got to go through a checklist to know fully. Well, Josh, we're running out of time. and I'm so grateful for you um, going through all of this. I'm sure listeners have found it extremely useful. And I think it's almost that the more profound and complex and close up, potentially risky encounters, we can almost learn more from. The danger of dwelling on these kinds of cases is that they are actually unrepresentative. You know, they're very dramatic and they're interesting to listen to. But of course, it's not very representative of the main types of big cat sightings we get. But obviously, we're bound to dwell on cases like yours because they are so interesting. And I think we can learn from them. So, But anything before we finish, anything else you would like to say that you don't think we've covered so far? If you think I'm talking rubbish, then that's fine. If you choose not to believe me, that's fine as well. This is just my opinion of it. But I know what I saw with my own eyes. It's completely opened my eyes to lots of different things in life. I hope other people can share their encounters and enjoy reading and listening to the podcast. I hope they continue to thrive and we sort of find a way to live with them. Yeah, yeah. Incidentally, did you see any lasting effects on the dog? Did the dog just sort of brush it off and was his normal self? We stayed at another place and had like a glass front to it. And uh, it was right next to some woods in North Wales. He looked outside and just went completely mental and hid a bit. But that, maybe that's just a bit of either a bit traumatised or he saw something. I don't know. Who knows? I doubt that is the case. I think probably he just got a bit scared of something because of, you know, I'm taking him back out to Wales into the middle of nowhere. And last time it didn't go too well for him. I wouldn't read in that much into that one. When we went back last time, he wasn't massively keen on the decking outside. But yeah, you don't really know, do you? It's a dog. Yeah. You go back to the same place? Or you will go back to the same place? Yeah, I will go back to the same place. It's a nice place. Um, I just won't go walking on my own in the dark. I wouldn't want to put the dog through it again. And for I know, the dog smells like a big roast chicken to it. Putting him straight back in the mix, I'm not too sure. And when he didn't like the decking, that might have been the day or so after Great. Josh, I think we've talked ourselves through and this has been so useful and I'm very grateful. And I know that you came on more of a sense of duty (laughs) more than anything else. But I mean, in a way, that's what the podcast is for, for people to bear their soul if they want to. And I hope you found it useful. I'm sure our listeners have found it extremely interesting and extremely useful. So thanks ever so much for coming on the show on episode 30, Josh. Thank you very much. We have a few announcements to finish with. First is some helpful news about the cat high up an oak tree in Dorset that Bee described so well for us, and that was in episode 27. There's been some preliminary scaling of her footage that we put on our website for episode 27, and that was done by measuring the main branch that the cat was filmed on. From that exercise, it does appear that Bee's own scaling and judgment was about right, with her view that the cat was about a metre long from head to rump. 
It's also been noted that the tree has a squirrel dray or nest in it, so it's likely the cat was after young squirrels then in April. That's the time when squirrels have their litter and the young would be nest-bound and vulnerable. So that's a very interesting update from that case from episode 27. The second piece of news is that at least one of our podcast guests, and maybe two of them, have recently got interesting long-tailed animals snapped on their trail cameras. So, really well done to them. Hopefully we'll hear more details in future after they've double-checked everything, including, of course, size and scale. More on that, or those, cases in due course. Way back in episode 8, we heard from documentary maker Matt Everett. He explained all about his preliminary documentary on Britain's Big Cat Mystery. It's already won two awards, and he's been busy doing some finishing touches recently. The documentary trailer is linked on our website under episode 8, and a new Facebook page and website for the documentary has now been set up. You can find links to those under episode 30 on the Refs and Links page of the Big Cat Conversations website. The documentary really takes the subject forward, although I have to say there are a couple of dodgy bits with me in it. Apart from that, it's packed with good material, and Matt and his colleague Tim really have done their research. So, something to look forward to soon with that documentary, and we'll keep you posted on where to find it when it's out. For the next episode, we're going to look into some important historical events from Bodmin and Exmoor areas, together with two prominent people involved in those cases at the time. We have a discussion with Lord Tyler, Paul Tyler, who was the former MP for North Cornwall. He triggered the government inquiry into potential big cats and sheep kills around Bodmin Moor in the 1990s. Then we'll hear from Exmoor farmer Eric Lay, because he was the main farmer finding regular sheep carcasses on his land in 1983, suspected to result from big cat impacts. We'll hear all about the commotion that caused in Exmoor area at the time. So stay tuned for the inside stories on the Beast of Bodmin and the Exmoor Beast. The Promised Scotland episode that I've been on about should follow that. You'll understand why it's a bit delayed when you hear it. That is us done for episode 30. Remember, you can email me if you'd like to discuss an encounter or sighting that you've had on the show. The email address is rick at bigcatconversations.com. Thanks again to our guest, Josh. And of course, thank you everyone for listening. Till next time, take care and all the best.